For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a report on the Prison Education Project, designed to make a difference by offering inmates a chance to learn about the universe. And a conversation with Sandra Cisneros, a contemporary literary giant who's visiting Tucson for Humanities Week. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. We often hear about prison programs designed to help inmates with educational attainment or job training. But despite its name, the goal of the Prison Education Project is different. Funded by a donation to the University of Arizona English Department, the program aims to foster intellectual curiosity and literacy among the inmates at the Arizona State Prison Complex in Tucson. Next, Emma Gibson speaks with Celeste O'Brien, the program coordinator for the Prison Education Project, and Ed Prather, an astronomy professor at the U of A who volunteers as a lecturer. Then she'll go inside the prison complex to hear what inmates have to say. How did this project start? The first group they went in with was in the Whetstone unit. There's eight different units within the complex here in Tucson, and Whetstone is one that has a lower custody level. So a lot of those incarcerated students actually, or incarcerated population actually go outside and work around the community. And they have a veterans pod on that unit. And so our first course, I was not involved at that time, but our first course was with a veterans group. And they went in with an English class for a semester type length. And they were doing on restoring honor in the veterans unit. And it was very popular and writing skills, ability to tell a story, that type of thing. Every semester we changed the topic or the theme. Um, Last fall we did science fiction popular with some people, less popular with others. And then this past spring, we did kind of exploring genre and personal narrative. And would you call that first year a success? What did that first year roll into? The first year was a success. The students are very interested in any kind of education. I think Ed can probably attest to that as well. They're very engaged. It's they self-select in, they request to go, and they're very active and engaged students. Not like a student on a typical college campus. They don't have cell phones. They don't have computers or laptops. So they're directly engaged with the instructor or the lecturer. And Ed, you are one of the lecturers. Yeah. What are your lectures about? So, you know, it's interesting. It's important to kind of draw this distinction between the um, work that's happening with the English department in terms of working with uh, um, helping with writing and, and and a program that is much more kind of structured in that way versus these kind of I fly in and I do a lecture kind of a thing, you know. And the, so the, the faculty that are coming in and doing lectures are really drawing from their expertise and their discipline often. So as we look to faculty across campus, one of the things we look at is what are some of the ideas 
that we think the um, incarcerated folks would be interested in hearing about. And so as an astronomy professor, I'm lucky in that my topic is universally kind of interesting to folks. Typically, folks want to hear more, you know. And so in uh, talking with Celeste and Marsha about going in, I brought up a couple different ideas that I thought would give the participants an, an opportunity to kind of go beyond the yard in their mind and in their, you know, in the experience that they had. And my area of expertise within astronomy is astronomy education. And so creating engaging classroom experiences that go beyond lecture. So although we call them lectures, as Celestia said, they're very engaged. Um, the students are voting, they're discussing with each other, they're working through worksheets, they're having really vibrant discussions at a level that surpass what my college students' discussions are in many ways, in terms of the passion they bring to it, the intent that they have. And I wasn't sure how they'd respond, whether they'd think it was, I don't know, childish or not something of interest to them. And I had the opposite experience. Um, they are eager to not just vote, but to get into a discussion with the folks around them about why they think what they think is correct. And it's not combative as much as it is supportive of each other. They're really helpful to each other to try to get to being as a group at the highest correct response rate they can get. And that's really an interesting outcome because I don't necessarily see that play out in my college classroom at the same level. And I mean, on many of the most difficult questions of astrophysics that I ask in my college classroom, the prison and inmate population is outdoing our students here at U of A. It's really interesting. And you said that your lectures, you're trying to take these inmates out of the yard. What are some of the other lectures doing? There's been um, a select group of faculty that have gone there, but one that I think would be, you know, um, exemplary of also bringing them to somewhere that they're that the inmates are really interested in learning about, and I, and I think it also attends to the places that they're curious about, um, has been a lecture on the brain that was done recently by uh, one of our faculty here. She literally brought a brain in, and uh, this particular instructor is adept at working with non-science major populations of the university, like I am. And so she can unpack pretty complex ideas from neuroscience. And I had been already asked by the inmates after one of my lecture questions about perception and questions about um, how we interpret things, because astronomy kind of provokes some of those thoughts. And I was like, OK, we need to get somebody from the neurosciences in here. And we happen to have a colleague, Lynn Olander, who is really exceptional. We've also had an ESL team go in. We've expanded to a second yard with our English unit. One of our lecturers from the Museum of Art was working with a lecture at the, at the prison and was surprised to hear the incarcerated students talking about, wow, you should see my art. Not a lot of people recognize the amount of art in a prison. And so it, it has evolved over time, and we've actually got a full-blown art exhibit project going on this summer. We trained over 115 potential artists to submit inside the prison. Each unit will have their own art exhibit. One's already occurred. The top three or four of each exhibit will be coming out from the prison in November and be prepared just like any other professional art on loan to the museum. Yeah, that does sound this very is, This is one of those areas that was kind of surprising. I had just given a lecture dealing with how we find other planets outside of our solar system. And, and one of the inmates grabbed me and it was like, I got to show you what I've made. And there was a wall the size of a large dining room that was his art exhibit that was all astronomy focused. And I was taken aback by just how not just he, but the inmates around him were all strongly influenced by what was happening from an arts perspective. Um, these people have rich 
histories. They have wonderful ideas. And the metaphors and analogies that are used in the prison setting are not the same as the metaphors and analogies that are used in my college classroom. And to some extent, that's the nature of the success. They're drawing from a richer pool of ideas in many ways in that setting and their ability to convey a deep understanding from an astrophysical concept from their own understandings that have nothing to do with astronomy are, are really interesting to watch happen. Why would you say that prison education and this project are important? Recidivism is expensive. Somebody coming right back in costs money. Education has been proven to impact recidivism rates positively, drive them down. We want people to go out and be successful. So for me, it's about investing in my community and seeing success and seeing that when my neighbor gets out, they're going to be a successful contributor to my community. Keep on rolling, gentlemen. Keep on rolling. Hey, let's go, man. It's Friday afternoon, and Professor Prather welcomes his students into the classroom, the visitation room at the Arizona State Prison Complex in Tucson. A group of nearly 50 men in orange uniforms look up at him for his fourth astronomy lecture. Since most of you are new, let me just say that uh, I was a crane mechanic for a living. Never thought I was going to go to college. I was a first-generation college student. Being a crane mechanic and hanging around a bunch of other crane mechanics in my trailer was not a good scenario for me. I got lucky and found along the way astronomy as a result of just trying a class once at a community college. And it kind of changed my life. This is something I could put some time into that would kind of help me be a part of society, different from all the crap I'm doing that ain't helping me be a part of society at all. And it gave me kind of a vehicle to move in a different direction than I was headed, which wasn't particularly good. He tells them he hopes astronomy can motivate them too. Prather says he joined the University of Arizona's prison education project because he thinks the U.S. undervalues people in prison. He tells the men to form groups of two or three and to introduce themselves. Threes. Tables of threes are fine, man. Okay. So a couple other things. I just need to warm your brain up to the direction I'm going, which is astronomy. Time. Distance. The universe. A solar system is made up of celestial objects centered around a star or stars. In our case, the sun. The class talks about where the Earth is in our solar system and that there are more than 100 billion solar systems in a galaxy like the Milky Way. I'm going to say it again. There's about 100 billion solar systems in our galaxy. What do you call your galaxy? The Milky Way. You live in the Milky Way galaxy around one star in one solar system. And there's about 100 billion of them in this galaxy. Now the really weird thing, there's about 100 billion galaxies in the universe. So I want to walk us through that same kind of size and scale and timeline and objects. But I want to do it today in terms of a really weird phenomenon, time. He tells them the light in the sky that we call the sun isn't really the star itself. It's the light that left it eight minutes ago. In essence, you can think of it as looking back in time. You can see back in time 75,000 years in our galaxy. That's nothing. That's not learning much about something that's 13 point something billion years old. Prather hands everyone a piece of paper with questions about looking at distant objects. 
The eighth question starts, Imagine that you are observing the light from a distant star that was located in a galaxy 100 million light years away from you. Prather asks five men to stand up. The first, he says, will represent the Earth, and another will be the star, which is about 15 feet or 100 million light years away from it. Right now, according to this problem, observers on Earth are seeing that star, and how old does it appear right now? 10 million, 10 million years old. What's its total lifetime? 50 million years. Okay, keep all those numbers in your head as we kind of do this. Prather tells them a story about a star being created and the first light photon beginning to travel through space. He has a man stand up by the star to represent that photon. I want you to say pause when he's traveled far enough that our star is 10 million years old. Uh-oh. Ready? Oh, yeah. This might take a couple of tries. Ready? Ready? Go. The newly created photon creeps about two feet towards the Earth before stopping. Prather stands between the star's first photon of light and the Earth. He says the people on Earth can't even see the light yet. There is still just under 15 feet to go before the photon reaches Earth. With the fourth inmate, he sends off another photon of light to walk halfway towards Earth. The journey across the front of the room represents 40 million light years, at which time the star is scheduled to die. The fifth man gets up. And this is the supernova that occurs at the time of the death. <laughs> Boom! The star then becomes a black hole, but Prather explains light from its photons and supernova are still traveling towards Earth. The first time we see the light on Earth, the star looks 10 million years old, and it will take another 40 million years to see its death, even though it died 60 million years ago. After about 15 minutes of questions and one more demonstration, time is up and everyone prepares to leave. Bradley Peterson is one of the inmates who helps host these lectures through the Regaining Honored Veterans program at the prison. I enjoy watching the light come on, so to speak, in a lot of guys' minds and eyes, you know, when uh, we discuss this stuff. They seem to be enthusiastic, and Mr. Prather is well-spoken. We appreciate him. The next lectures to be given across the Arizona State Prison Complex will be about Easter Island, how the brain reacts to stress, and Central American history through art. I'm Emma Gibson for Arizona Spotlight. I found that when I come here, i got to leave time because you guys got questions. And I've already had a ton of them. So let her rip, man. I'll see if I can answer them. Let her rip. Celeste O'Brien, the program coordinator, says the Prison Education Project is looking for more lecturers. So if you'd like to volunteer, you can find information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. what I'm going to do. I don't think about it. It just happens. <laughs> I wish I could say that it all came from some brilliant place, but writing just happens to me. Sandra Cisneros is a poet, essayist, and sometimes an illustrator.
Her 1983 debut novel, The House on Mongo Street, was heralded as a classic work of coming-of-age fiction, and it's now a favorite of readers around the world. Her numerous awards include NEA fellowships in poetry and fiction, the Texas Medal of the Arts, and a MacArthur Fellowship. Sandra Cisneros has written often about finding peace and coming to terms with her passionate temper. But above all, she believes in the permanence and purity of love and the death-defying bond it creates between human beings and animals. Cisneros will bring her latest book to Tucson as a featured speaker during Humanities Week on the University of Arizona campus. I started by asking her about making the transition from the private inner world of being a writer to meeting her readers. Well, I think most writers and most artists are introverts, unless you're uh, a comedian or an actor. Uh, you don't uh, get a lot of energy from being around people. It, it drains you and, and is very exhausting. But I'm a good extroverted introvert. Uh, but of course, afterwards, it takes me a long time to be quiet and settle to get back to my writing. I think that there's two parts to my work as opposed to other writers. Uh, some other writers are, don't see themselves as performers, uh, but I do. And, I, and more than anything, I see myself as a teacher, and the work that I do is one of healing, but I'm not a, a trying to pretend I'm something I'm not. I just think that art heals us, and when we go to hear writers, we hope that they will impart some wisdom, and especially right now when people who look like me, people who have indigenous roots, are uh, subjects to attack and vilification and hate, I feel that the work I do is one of building community, of building bridges, of making people understand one another, and working towards people listening, because I really think that that's the message we need in these times. I'm not hearing it from any of the candidates, by the way, uh, but I try to do work of the spirit. That, I guess, is the best way to say it. Uh, and that's why I go out. Uh, some people are never going to arrive to my work on the page or on their Kindle, but maybe they don't need to buy my book. They just need to hear or be uplifted or get the medicine because books are medicine. They need that prescription that day uh, to help them along their, their path. So that's the work that I do. And I feel even though I, like every writer, I prefer to stay in bed and read a book, I think it's very important that we go out and share our medicine, our stories and our poetry and our wisdom uh, with communities that are in pain. And that's certainly what we're living through right now, a really dark time in American history. Well, you mentioned your love for reading there for a moment, and I think it's neat that on your website you have some recommendations. You have some books that you've read recently. And something you said... I'm always recommending. <laughs> I have an Instagram account, and I always take pictures of the books I'm reading, my bedside books, and I'll prop them next to my dogs because I get more likes that way. If I put a book <laughs> alone, not everyone will pay attention, but if I put a very cute chihuahua next to the book, I get lots of likes. Well, one of the books that you recommended on your site that uh, struck a chord with me was Create Dangerously, The Immigrant Artist at Work by Edwige Dantica. And, oh, and yeah, it's such a terrific book. In your blurb, if we can call it that, about the book, you said that Dantica looks at writers who write in dangerous times. Were you thinking yes. of right now? Yes, I'm talking about now. I think we're, there are dangerous times in history and dangerous locations to be. And I think being an immigrant, being a person of color, being gay, being transgender, anything that is kind of the other right now is dangerous. 
and that's not just in the United States, it's globally. So uh, we're living in a time of anger, and I don't feel as if uh, we have a leader that's guiding us to uh, transform that anger into light, except the poets. And that's who I read when I'm feeling uh, overwhelmed and saddened by the news. Uh, I'll read Joy Harjo, or I'll look at the essays of Edwige Dondekat or her fiction, or I'm, I look at the essays of Thich Nhat Hanh, great spiritual leader. That's who I look at to guide me and to encourage me in the work I do. How do you like to keep up with your ideas? Do you have a, a method that you prefer to save well, something I, for later? Yeah, I put it in the notes of my iPhone, or I write it on a little piece of paper on a notebook. I try not to put it on a little piece of paper because I lose it. But now that I have an iPhone, I put it in the notes section. Uh, you know, like I hear this man on the corner. He's on the corner of Hidalgo and Mesona Street. And he has a cart and he says, Cacahuates, chocolates, cigarros, puros, blah, 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 blah. And he has this <laughs> chant that goes like that. And I finally stopped him. I said, Senor, could you please say that slower? And I put it in my iPhone. And I just thought, one day I'm going to want to use this chant. And I have. I finally found a place for it this summer because I'm working on a um, libretto for an opera of House on Mango Street. And I put it in the mouth of a a man who has a push cart on Mongo Street. So it's perfect, you see? What is it like to revisit Mongo Street for you? Oh, it's exciting. You know, I, I didn't uh, ever want to do sequels, but this isn't a sequel. This is more like going back to a work of art and uh, just going deep sea diving and plummeting and going a little bit deeper with characters. So it's really been great fun. I'm working with Derek Barmel, the uh, composer, and he is just so much fun to work with. I can't tell you. It's just thrilling. It's like going on a car ride with someone who tells great stories, who sings, and makes you laugh, and who, best of all, laughs at your jokes. <laughs> well, that's essential. Yes. Do you recognize the Sandra that you see behind the words of the original novel? In, in what you're doing now, are you forging any kind of new relationship with, your, yeah, with yourself? Well, you know, the characters still talk to me. I still I feel like a clairvoyant. You know, I'm just like a channeler. Uh, I hear their voices, and they say new things to me, and I know them so well. So uh, it's exciting to go back and, and have the characters uh, just expound a little bit more about things and bring them up to date. You know, to have characters documenting uh, abuse with an iPhone, you know, that, that's something new. Uh, to, to bring it up to date to the year we're living as opposed to uh, freezing the story in the past. So often it seems like filmmakers who revisit their classic material, they always second-guess themselves and they begin to undo the work that they've done. But you haven't had that kind of conflict? No. I think, uh, you know, House on Mongo Street was written like poetry, and it was not poetry. I was, um, at the time that I began it, I was a poetry student at the University of Iowa, but I knew I wasn't just a poet. I had written fiction before I came to Iowa, and I, I knew I loved both. So I was experimenting. I was looking at experimental writers, and I was trying to uh, write something that was between the two genres, something new. Uh, and so I, I see them as as you know, kind of what I do now still. I'm always visiting borders. 
You spoke of your dual citizenship, and I just wonder with the current political climate that we're experiencing, has it become difficult for you to spend time in the United States? That's a good question. Uh, I feel the difference when I step to the United States now, Mark. You know, I really do, especially in, in rural parts of Texas, in ways that I didn't perceive uh, antagonism towards me before. I'm not exaggerating or inventing, as you can feel it. And I didn't feel that before when I lived in in San Antonio. I am hoping this will inspire me to do the writing I do and to do the speaking and to try to come to my audience in a way that will not offend anyone and will be a way that I can listen to people that are upset when people are angry, it's usually because they're not being listened to. I'm trying to do that work. I think the times calls for great human beings, great leaders, but I think we need to be those great leaders. So that's something I have to remind myself of daily because I'm not like, I'm not Nelson Mandela, but why can't I try to be? And I think that it's something that we can try to do in our daily listening, in the way we treat people, in the way we make eye contact with everyone we meet and are kind to them regardless who they are and what, especially if they don't look like us or don't look like our family, that come to people in a place of kindness. And uh, I, I think that's very hard to do. I think it's, uh-oh, there they go again. <laughs> I think it's difficult thing to do uh, when people growl you up. I think of people like Thich Nhat Hanh, who's one of my great heroes, and the work that he did during the Vietnam War and, uh, uh, you know, how he worked for peace after he'd seen uh, fellow monks committed suicide uh, to bring attention to the Vietnam War. And so there was a lot of grief in his heart. But he transformed that grief to light in the work he did. And I think that's something that, you know, we have to remind ourselves we can do. That that's some, Even if it's just small things of, like, how we change the, the nature of the language we use. Uh, so that it's not uh, violent. And, and you know, I'm not the greatest. I'm really good at losing my temper. But uh, when I read people like Marshall Rosenberg or Thich Nhat Hanh or Joy Harjo, they help me to uh, train myself how to transform uh, my anger and my impatience to light. And I don't think we're training children or young people uh, how to do that. I think it should be required in schools. The College of Humanities and the Poetry Center at the University of Arizona presents Sandra Cisneros in the Grand Ballroom at the UA Student Union on Thursday, October 24th at 7 p.m. She'll read from her latest book, followed by a Q&A session and book signing. You can register for this free event at humanitiesfestival.arizona.edu. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.